On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss the latest news, remind listeners about the CDC's recommendations about masking, and the CMS requirements for accommodations for unvaccinated exempt employees. And in our focus segment, we look into the importance of manufacturers' instructions for regulatory compliance. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. We would like to thank our sponsors, Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers, Trivalence. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable data insights, and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, please visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. Welcome to episode 180 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for February 18th, 2023, recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Sue Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Operations Manager for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. We would like to remind our listeners that the ASC regulatory environment is a rapidly evolving landscape, and the material presented in this episode is based on the most current information available as of the date of the recording. As such, it is important to recognize that this information may be subject to change, and we advise all ASCs to stay up to date with the latest regulations and guidelines issued by their relevant regulatory bodies. And joining me is none other than John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and one of the most respected experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. With over 30 years of experience, Mr. Gailey has authored over 10 books on the ASC industry and is a sought-after speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. So He's got a big grin on his face. <laughs> so every once in a while we want to change the opening script here, and we used a uh, uh, one of these uh, systems that creates a little bit more interesting dialogue here. So I did not write that, Sue. <laughs> that none other than John none Gailey. None other than John Gailey. <laughs> yeah, we might have to change that a little bit. But And Sue, we should point out that you have a new title uh, with Ambulatory yeah. Healthcare Strategies. You uh, used to be a senior nurse consultant. We're doing away with all that consulting terminology mm-hmm. over at Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, and everybody has a new title. Uh, but yep. more importantly is you've moved up uh, to operations manager for mm-hmm. Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Congratulations. Uh, you're Thank joining you. uh, me and administration and trying to manage the – it's kind of like herding cats, isn't it? So <laughs> manage our 20 employees and our 75 clients. So it's mm-hmm. uh, quite a job and uh, – I don't know if you thought you would be working less hours. I know that's one of your nope. ultimate goals, but that certainly <laughs> yeah, is not happening. But uh, welcome to uh, the the important job of managing the operations of the organization. So um, we have a lot of exciting news. Uh, the biggest thing is Rosie, who has been following us around all day, uh, yeah. is in the studio here somewhere. But she's getting very close. She's yeah. uh, less than two weeks away. Less than two she's weeks away. March first, so. <clears throat> somewhere around there is when she's due, and we'll find out. 
on the 24th of February, we're going to do and you know, have her get an X-ray, and we'll find out how many puppies are in there. But eight or nine, probably. Yeah, she oh, boy, she looks big. She does look big. She looks yeah. very big. And of course, we have been experiencing incredible growth uh, over at Amateur Healthcare Strategies. One of the reasons that Sue had to move into a different role there is, uh, you know, uh, that we've picked up. I, I'd say probably in the last two months, ten new clients. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a pretty significant growth. So uh, we apologize to our clients who are. Um, or for clients that are trying to uh, to engage our services, there is a little bit of a delay right now on that. But uh, we do appreciate everyone, and we're we're doing our best. And we have the same supply chain problems that everybody has in mm-hmm. hiring people, getting them trained, et cetera. We have some exciting news. We are going to be introducing a new uh, podcast or a new edition. You might remember uh, two years ago we introduced the staff edition. We're going to be having a staff edition. Uh, probably in a couple days here, uh, related to the very topic we have for our focus mm-hmm. segment today. We're going to be introducing another uh, edition called the Governing Body Edition. So there's been quite a bit of talk among our uh, patron members uh, about how do we educate our governing body members mm-hmm. on their responsibilities. And we were going to prepare like a 15-minute recorded segment on it that you could uh, – provide to your your uh, governing body like once a year. And then as we were thinking about it more, it, you know, just having one uh, recording uh, is probably not enough. Maybe that's all you can get your, your governing body to listen mm-hmm. to. But uh, we just thought that it might not be a bad idea to have uh, this edition available to any governing body members that would like to uh, listen. Mm-hmm. It'll be short because uh, we yeah. know their attention span can be a little bit short sometimes. Uh, they have so many other duties and responsibilities. Uh, and they could listen to it during a governing body meeting or mm-hmm. you could give them the link so that they could listen to it uh, in their car. Uh, but our our goal with that special governing body edition will be to focus on those responsibilities, those things that the governing body needs to know in a very short, uh, very short segment so that mm-hmm. it's uh, easily digestible. And we would ideally, and as you said, our goal would be for the staff edition to come out more frequently. I know we've kind of fallen behind. It's, yeah. There's just been so much going on, but that we'd like to get that out on a more regular basis. And the governing body one wouldn't be as frequent. I yeah, probably every you know, like three months, maybe four mm-hmm. times a year. Mm-hmm. But uh, we're going to be working on that. The first one hopefully will be out in the next couple of weeks. And, uh, and I hope that will uh, go over as well as our staff edition has gone over with mm-hmm. our audience. And just been seeing some more news about the that nurse transcript scheme that we've talked about a little bit where some nurses – I think it was in um, Florida, right? Or was it? That's where the schools, which actually are not operating anymore, but that's where the people that were perpetrating it, I think, were based. But um, there were there were nurses from all over. And I don't know if I really call them nurses, but people yeah. that some were LPN, some did not have that education. But they bought some transcripts. I believe it was like 10000 or 15000 a piece yeah. that they paid for them to allow them to be able to take the NCLEX. And surprisingly... They passed. A, a good, Some of them passed. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, less than half, but still, it was yeah. pretty shocking to me. Um, but I was just kind of following up to see what was going on. So some of the states, it doesn't sound like any are going to be charged, but many of the states are um, asking that the nurses voluntarily surrender their licenses, and most have not done that. Oh, um, I would think you would just want to get that done and apologize and hope you didn't get in more trouble. But maybe there's some sort of a legal reason they're trying not to do that. Um, and, you know, the other some other states have just annulled the licenses. And there's been a lot of discussion on how this might impact the nursing shortage. And I've seen things, 
I'm not sure how long this has been going on, but they're saying some of these nurses may really have experience, and obviously they shouldn't be Acting working as, as nurses, nurses yeah, but yeah. it just is one more blow to the to the industry and to such the a staffing. Time. Yep. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about some uh, recent news, and some of this is really not so much news as just an update on on things. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion uh, about the mask mandate again, uh, and uh, we just want to remind everybody of the CDC requirements. And I'll put links in the uh, uh, in the show notes here uh, to this information. But I know that uh, I've gotten a lot of questions. We've had a lot of questions too during our uh, Saturday drop-in mm-hmm. uh, patron sessions yeah. uh, about the mask mandate because, of course, uh, I mean, I think people are really so tired of having to wear a mask all the time. And the ongoing question that we're getting is, when is this going to be over? So the pertinent yeah. uh, uh, requirements are from the Centers for Disease Control, CDC, and it's from a uh, recommendation dated September 23rd, 2023. And again, I'll provide the, the both the link to these recommendations as well as the tracking link that helps you to find out where your uh, particular county is with regard to the community transmission rate. So here, here is what that those recommendations from, from September 23rd state. When SARS-CoV-2 community transmission levels are high, source control is recommended for everyone in a healthcare setting when they are in areas of a healthcare facility where they would encounter patients. That would be, Sue, for example, the mm-hmm. waiting, really almost every second section yeah. of a surgery yeah. center, except, uh, you know, the back office, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, the healthcare provider could choose not to wear source control when they are in a well-defined area that is restricted from patient access, such as staff meeting rooms. And if they do not otherwise meet the criteria described in the following section, and community levels are also are not also high. When community levels are high, source control is recommended for everyone. And now when they say recommended, I just want to point out, we've, we've had people ask, well, they just suggest it. But it's a pretty strong recommendation when it comes from the CDC. Well, I think Lori uh, Rodericks in this morning's uh, patron mm-hmm. uh, thing made the point, well, uh, the recommendations for hand hygiene are recommendations yeah. from the CDC also. But if you fail to do hand hygiene, of course, you're going to be cited for that mm-hmm. during a survey. Mm-hmm. So uh, surveyors would probably take the same approach here. Um, the recommendations continue and say when SARS-CoV-2 uh, community transmission levels are not high, healthcare facilities could choose not to require universal source control. However, even if source control is not universally required, it remains recommended for individuals in a healthcare setting who have suspected or confirmed COVID-19 uh, inf- infection or other respiratory infections, such as a runny nose, cough, mm-hmm. or sneeze, or have had close contact, but and this would be for both patients and visitors, or a higher risk exposure, or if they are a patient or a visitor and have had cl- uh, close contact or for a healthcare provider who has a higher risk exposure with someone with with, uh, with COVID infection for 10 days after their exposure, or reside or work on a unit or area of the facility experience a COVID-19 break, outbreak, which would not really apply to us, mm-hmm. um, and have as otherwise had source control recommended by public health authorities. In other words, if your local health authorities require it, you would be required to do that also. Mm-hmm. So, again, at the present time, if you are in an area where the community transmission levels are high, and that is, I think it's two-thirds of the country still is at that category, you are still required to be wearing the masks. Okay. Uh, we'll provide a link to the the way that you calculate or look for the community transmission okay. rate. Um, it is not always obvious, so you need to yeah. make sure that when you click on that uh, link that I provide you, mm-hmm. that you select the community transmission the rate. The transmission rather than just the level. And right. And what many centers are doing – 
is really watching for a sustained drop because yeah. it would just be so confusing and really almost inviting more arguments, I think, if you're changing it day to day. And yeah. every morning you're saying, okay, now you have to do this. And, you know, it, it just it could really cause more problems than it solves. And so I guess I should also point out, I, I've been all over the country in the last couple of weeks. And even when they're wearing masks, mm -hmm. people are just not wearing them right now. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, you have to kind of enforce that. So I, I don't want to be the bearer of this. I'm, you know, please don't shoot the messenger here, but this is indeed what the CDC is recommending. And we can't forget as we, uh, start to lift the mask mandates across the country that unvaccinated individuals who've been granted exemptions have to be treated differently than other employees. And this has to be documented in a letter to them that outlines the conditions of their accommodations when they were granted that uh, that exemption. So everybody that was granted an exemption, of course, they have to go through a process. They have to have <coughs> approval. The approval needs to go all the way up through administration mm -hmm. to the governing body. And then uh, a letter would be issued to the employee with the specific accommodations they'll be expected to uh, uh, to implement. Um, and that letter should be signed by the employee indicating mm -hmm. that they accept those accommodations. So remember that the uh, the requirements for um, vaccination or for uh, employee vaccination comes under 416.51C, which is a standard for COVID-19 vaccination of staff. And this states that you have to have a policy to ensure that those staff who have been granted an exemption or accommodation is authorized by law who, or who have a temporary delay adhere to additional precautions that are intended to mitigate the spread of COVID-19. And there's a variety of actions or job modifications a facility can implement to potentially reduce the risk of transmission, of COVID transmission, including but not limited to things like reassigning the staff to an area where they wouldn't be in touch with patients or in contact mm -hmm. with patients. Uh, or to duties which limit exposure to those most at risk. Um, requiring staff to follow additional CDC recommended precautions such as adhering to universal source control and physical distancing measures in areas that are restricted from patient access such as staff meeting rooms in the kitchen, even if the facility or service site is located in a county with low to moderate community transmission. And what this really means is that that employee has to wear a mask at all times and really can't be eating uh, with other staff mm -hmm. members. And then uh, another accommodation, of course, is requiring at least weekly testing for exempted staff and staff who have not completed their primary vaccination series. That's really not applicable now until the re regulatory requirement is met, regardless of whether the facility or service site is located in a county with low or moderate community transmission or requiring that staff to use a uh, approved N95 uh, or its equivalent. And Sue, still I am running into centers who are not following the rules with regard to N95 mm -hmm. masks. So I know you've heard it. You probably don't want me to hear me state it again, but there's three main requirements if you have N95s. Number one, they have to be fit tested to the exact model that they are wearing. Number two, they have to have a medical evaluation performed at the time that that fit testing is done. And three, you have to have a respiratory protection program or policy, set of policies and procedures for respiratory protection in your organization. And then you have to remember that as soon as you take the N95 mask off, you have to throw it out. If you are using the N95 in a um, uh, during a procedure, in a procedure room or an operating room, you have to replace it after every procedure. So again, I thought it would be important to kind of reiterate some of those things that uh, hopefully people haven't forgotten. And I just saw this um, article in Becker's Hospital Review. A study looking at hospital board members found that less than 15% 
of board members overseeing the nation's top hospitals have a professional background in healthcare. More than half have a financial or business services background. Now, this was from a study whose authors are from Harvard Medical School, Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, and the University of Alabama at Birmingham. The study was limited as it represented mostly the high-ranking hospitals, and some hospitals um, don't report board information, so they did have limited information. The authors also mentioned a 2018 study which found that 42% of U.S. hospital boards had all-white members and 70% of the members were male. So, Not a lot of diversity. No, not a lot of diversity, and it just surprised me that so few had um, professional backgrounds in healthcare. Some had, had been in healthcare administration, but to actually yeah. have have a, a clinical background. Well, I, I like what I find interesting useful. about that too, Sue, is that compare that to the ambulatory surgery industry, mm-hmm. where that would be extraordinarily rare. I mean, all of our board members and our yeah. governing bodies are more likely, are much more likely to be a physician mm-hmm. uh, or you know the administrator of the organization, somebody that has a lot of experience. So yeah, that, is that might explain why we have so many problems with hospitals <laughs> understanding what we are. Um, and from Fierce Healthcare, January 24th, 2023, the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association, which represents 38 of the Blues plans, um, released several policy priorities for the current Congress as part of a new report. The name of the report is the Affordability Solutions for the Health of America, and they believe it will reduce health care costs by $767 billion over 10 years. Some of the policies would change Medicare reimbursement rates to pay the same amount to clinics, whether they are independent or affiliated with a hospital. And other parts of the plan would focus on prescription drugs and encouraging more participation in value-based care. But that basically that um, site-neutral payment right. I think could be a really great idea. And, John, I don't think you'll like this comment. The American Hospital Association has argued that the outpatient departments need higher rates because they are beholden to greater regulatory standards <laughs> than freestanding clinics. And I believe oh. none other than John Gailey has <laughs> said several times that that doesn't really seem to be true. That is so, so true. And, again, it's probably because the people that have made these arguments don't have a healthcare background. Yeah. So, indeed, uh, those that have taken our courses, that listen to the podcast, that have gone through our boot camps know that, indeed, um, ambulatory surgery centers are subject to a much Highly greater regulated. regulatory standard yeah. uh, than the hospitals do. Of course, hospitals have other regulations they have to uh, mm-hmm. have to do. Mm-hmm. But when, when, you're, when you're trying to make the argument, and it says, has argued that outpatient departments need higher rates because they're beholden to higher yeah. Yeah. Right. That is that's just flat out wrong. Mm-hmm. I, I find it interesting though that seven hundred sixty six seven hundred and sixty seven billion. That number actually seems over ten years seems kind of low to me, mm-hmm. given that we know that you could save you know billions of dollars just by moving some of the more common cases to the ambulatory surgery setting. So, yeah. um, well, we'll see if anything happens with that. Certainly, we know we've got a major healthcare problem, uh, affordability problem, and and we have a great message if we could only get it across to the people mm-hmm. that make these financial decisions. So let's talk about some recent experiences. Uh, so something's been happening uh, that we have to remind people. In New York, a couple weeks ago, there was a, um, uh, an injunction uh, against the requirement for a COVID vaccination for uh, facility staff, which stopped the New York State version of the uh, COVID uh, mm-hmm. vaccination requirement. 
Um, now, I'm not quite sure where that is from in the legal process here, but it started a conversation because people said, oh, I don't have to have my staff vaccinated. We had yeah. to point out to our clients that uh, asked that question that the CMS requirement is still there. Mm-hmm. So uh, you you made this note here that it's so important that we remember that uh, there are a multitude of regulations that mm-hmm. govern everything that we do in a surgery center. And even though the state requirement might be there, the federal requirement is going to be there. So remember that rule of thumb is always – uh, you always have to follow the most stringent regulation mm-hmm. when you are trying to determine which regulations to follow. Yeah. Um, Same with that with the mask thing that we were just talking about because in New York State, you know, just all of a sudden it was all over the news that that people didn't have to mask anymore. And but you still, you still have still the do. CDC, you right. know, and and they don't mention that on the news. They don't, you know, make that little footnote. So you really have to be aware of yeah. all of those things, whether it's you know OSHA, whether it's NFPA. All of these different things. And I know uh, sometimes our clients will ask us, well, where exactly did that regulation come from? And sometimes it's hard to yeah. remember and to figure out. You just know it's it's right or it's the standard of care. But so, you know, you just have to be careful. That's right. And and again, uh, there's so many resources out there. Uh, and we try to keep you up to date on the podcast, of mm-hmm. course, on, on all these regulations. But, you know, I, I mean, this is going to sound like we're kind of pushing ambitorial strategies in the consulting wing here, but it is important to understand that the, um, you really have to keep on top of these or, you know, uh, read constantly, you know, Becker's ASC, for example, the ASC Association mm-hmm. newsletters and magazines, of course, our podcast, all of our conferences, attend regular conferences, mm-hmm. attend your state association meetings to keep on top of this. Uh, and uh, if you can't, or if you just don't have the time, and there are so many people that don't, uh, you might want to consider, uh, you know, hiring a service such as as what we offer. So, Sue, so we have a great section uh, um, on instructions for use, uh, which is what we're going to talk about in our focus segment here. It's just a, it's becoming such an important thing. We mentioned it a couple weeks ago when we uh, were talking about one of the centers that had been cited because they didn't have the IFUs for mm-hmm. instruments they had. So let's take a short break and we come back and we're going to focus on manufacturer's instructions and instructions for use. It's been a long day and the surveyor has just left and you are exhausted and looking at the list of items that you have to address. You wonder, how can I deal with this and still take care of my patients? More importantly, you wonder, how can I ever keep up with all the regulations, standards, and accreditation requirements? How can I always be prepared for a survey and reduce my stress levels? Well, that's what Ambitory Healthcare Strategies does, day in, day out. We become your outsourced regulatory and accreditation resource. We can maintain your policy manual, develop your education programs, help out with fire and disaster drills, do your risk assessments, oversee your quality improvement activities, help run your quality improvement meetings and governing body meetings, and we can even prepare your monthly or quarterly financial statements and help you figure out where you are financially. We are a retainer-based service. We don't take ownership. We don't charge based on your revenue. We have one fixed monthly fee, and we can tailor your services to your exact needs. So whether you're looking for help getting over a survey, preparing for a survey, or looking for a long-term relationship to assist you with your ongoing regulatory and or financial needs, please give us a call at 585-594-1167 or email us at info at ahstrategies.com. That is info at ah-strategies.com or visit our website at ah-strategies.com. 
So in our focus segment, uh, we're going to talk about the instructions for use. So to define instructions for use or IFUs, they are written or pictorial information provided by a manufacturer or supplier of a medical device, medication, or equipment to guide the user in how to correctly and safely use a product. And they are crucial to the healthcare setting to ensure that healthcare providers, patients, or caregivers use the products appropriately to avoid harm or negative consequences. So the instructions for use typically include information on the indications, contraindications, warnings, precautions, storage, handling, assembly, operation, maintenance, and disposal of the product. And these are not just the safety data sheets, I should Mm -hmm. point out here. So uh, they would include the safety data Mm -hmm. sheets, but that would only be one part of it. The IFU might also provide guidance on troubleshooting and emergency procedures uh, in the case of a failure of the equipment. And in some cases, the IFU might also include technical specifications or guidelines for cleaning, sterilization, or disinfection of the product, Mm -hmm. which is, of course, is extremely important here. Yes. IFUs are important in the healthcare setting for several reasons. For for example, safety, medical products and equipment can cause harm or negative consequences if they're used improperly. Instructions for use provide critical information on the safe and correct use of a product, including any potential hazards, risks, or contraindications. And for compliance, IFUs are often required by regulatory bodies mm-hmm. to ensure that medical products and equipment meet safety and efficacy standards. And that's one thing to mention that you you should be able to find those and show them to somebody if they ask, even if you feel like you know it, you've yeah. always, you know, you've half memorized it. You have to be able to locate those. Or if you've had the equipment for 20 years, it doesn't yep. matter. You, you still got to have it. Um, liability. In the case of adverse events or injuries related to the use of a product, healthcare providers may need to demonstrate that they follow the instructions for use to avoid any liability. And on a quality, from the quality standpoint, IFUs can help healthcare providers ensure that, ensure that the products are used consistently and correctly, which can improve the quality of care and patient outcomes. So speaking as a surveyor, I will tell you that um, that is like one out of every 10 words that we say or questions that we ask of, <laughs> of, of people yeah. during a survey is, can you show me the instructions for use? Do you have the instructions for use? So if they ask you a question and you're stumped, just say, instructions for use. <laughs> That's, That's right. yeah. usually the answer. <laughs> <laughs> just make sure you can find them. Uh, I've actually started doing this uh, based upon what happened in one of our surveys. Uh, I did a survey a couple weeks ago where uh, I just picked an instrument on the shelf mm-hmm. At one at a center that I was surveying, and said, "Find me the instructions for use." And to the to his credit, the guy that uh, was doing this, he said, "No problem." I, I mean, he didn't even flinch. He, yeah. he said, "No problem. I'll be right back." And I said, "Stop." <laughs> said, you you clearly know exactly where it is. I probably. I mean, we, we have limited time during the survey, yeah. but he he didn't even flinch. Now, if he had like hesitated for a mm-hmm. second or did not seem like yeah. he knew what I was asking for, I would have certainly carried through on that. So, and then we also want to make sure that you're actually using them. Uh, I like a really worn copy of that uh, instructions for use. If you're, uh, we're going to go through all the different uh, regulatory issues on them. And, and uh, but for example, for uh, wave testing, if you uh, use a device for um, uh, blood glucose, that instruction for use should be immediately available right next to the machine. Uh, and have you know highlighted in there using the highlighter those important things that people need to know about mm-hmm. it. And of course, the staff needs to know exactly where those IFUs are at all times. And they and you'd have to have them available for everything that you use. Literally every piece of equipment, every supply that you use in your organization. So let's start by going through. Uh, so what I did is I went through all the conditions for coverage here um, and uh, searched for references to manufacturers' instructions. 
and I use that as kind of a basis for, uh, especially when when you want to have the regulatory basis, it's always good to go back to the conditions for coverage. So let's start with pharmaceuticals. And the regulatory uh, section for this is 41648A, which is a standard for administration of drugs. And drugs – in this states that drugs must be prepared and administered according to established policy, policies and acceptable standards of practice. So, Sue, why don't you tell us the interpretive guidelines for this section? Okay. The ASC must have policies and procedures – designed to promote medication administration consistent with acceptable standards of practice. The policies and procedures should address issues including but not limited to following the manufacturer's label, including sorting drugs and biologicals as directed, disposing of expired medications in a timely manner, using single-dose vials of medication for one ASC patient only. So again, very specifically, mm-hmm. right in the interpretive guidelines there, it talks about the manufacturer's, it says in this case, the mm-hmm. manufacturer's label, but of course that also refers to the instructions. Moving on to equipment, we're often asked what are the requirements for regular maintenance and inspections of all of your equipment. So they'll, they'll ask us, okay, what should we be doing with our generator? And the simple answer to that is, of course, that you need to read your instruction manual. So I remember we had a uh, – you had a client and I had a client that had a, a generator that was over 50 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did not have a copy of the instruction manual and, of course, the surveyor during a survey asked for it. They ended up having to have the uh, – they didn't – they couldn't replace it. So they ended up having the, the, the company that maintains the generator mm-hmm. create an instruction manual mm-hmm. for that uh, that outlined all the, the care for that equipment, which is the best they can do. And that was acceptable in this case. Remember to have all of the uh, instruction manuals close to the equipment. And remember, if you're using an electronic version, how are you going to access it during a power outage? Uh, and this, of course, is particularly yeah. important in the case of a generator mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. Uh, if the generator is running, it probably means that you don't have access to a computer with yeah. that information that, that should be there. Uh, so, again, if you want to know what the maintenance schedule is for all of your equipment, and that would include your your emergency lights, your backup mm-hmm. lights, your exit signs, uh, all of those would be uh, dictated by the instructions for use. Let's move on to alcohol-based skin preparation, and this falls under 416.42, the condition for coverage for surgical services. And just to remind you of what that condition states, surgical procedures must be performed in a safe manner by qualified physicians who have been granted clinical privileges by the governing body of the ASC in accordance with approved policies and procedures. And uh, even though that doesn't really sound like it would be referring specifically to um, instructions for use here, it does say must be performed in a safe manner. So the interpretive guidelines for 1642 state. The use of an alcohol-based skin preparation in ASCs is not considered safe unless appropriate fire risk reduction measures are taken, preferably as part of a systematic approach by the ASC to prevent surgery-related fires. A review of the recommendations produced by various expert organizations concerning use of alcohol-based skin preparations in anesthetizing locations indicates there is general consensus that the following fire risk reduction measures are appropriate. Using skin preparation solutions that are, one, packaged to ensure controlled delivery to the patient in unit dose applicators, swabs, or other similar applicators, and two, provide clear and explicit manufacturer supplier instructions and warnings. These instructions for you should be carefully followed. 
Okay, and again, I was just trying to show some examples mm -hmm. uh, in the regulations that specifically reference this. And of course, our alcohol-based hand rubs, that falls under 41644B, which is safety from fire. And this states an ASC may place alcohol-based hand rub dispensers in the facility if the dispensers are installed in a manner that adequately protects against inappropriate access. And of course, then the interpretive guidelines go on to talk about that. Regular maintenance of ABHR dispensers as seen is seen as a crucial step in making sure that its dispensers do not leak contents and thus cause a fire. ASCs are expected to maintain these dispensers in accordance with manufacturer's guidelines. If a manufacturer does not have specific maintenance requirements, the facility is expected to develop its own policies and procedures to maintain all ABHR dispensers. And Sue, this is one of those areas that I've been having some problems with recently because mm -hmm. uh, people, they're just so used to using these uh, alcohol-based hand rubs that they uh, they don't look at these instructions, and especially for those dispensers that automatically dispense yeah. it, uh, they have to be maintained. They have to be tested mm -hmm. periodically, and they need to be cleaned periodically, mm -hmm. et cetera. And people don't even know that those requirements are there or replacing batteries uh, is another common problem. Probably one of my least favorite things to talk about, but one of the most common things we talk about is temperature and humidity. And that falls under 41644A, the standard for physical environment. And this states that the ASC must provide a functional and sanitary environment for the provision of surgical services. And each operating room must be designed and equipped so that the types of surgery conducted can be informed performed in a manner that protects the lives and that assures the physical safety of all individuals. And again, the interpretive guidelines here for 41644A1 are very important because um, this is where they talk about the 20 to 60% relative humidity, but there is an important codicil here. So let's listen to what it states. Addendum D of the ASHRAE standard requires relative humidity in ORs to be maintained at between 20 and 60%. However, ASCs must consider sterile supply and medical equipment manufacturers' instructions for use regarding required humidity levels prior to any humidity level adjustment, such as to 20 to 60. Mm -hmm. Failure to maintain the manufacturer required humidity levels may void sterile packaging and result in medical equipment malfunction or failure. And of course, yeah. would also result in a citation from an organization. Yeah. So although you can follow their recommendations for the humidity and the temperature, you have to first make sure that everything you have in that that can be exposed to that is not compromised by, you know, the levels you've decided to set. And and it just is is general practice that mm -hmm. 30 to 60% yeah. meets virtually every piece of equipment mm -hmm. that, that's out there. Um, let's talk about sterile processing and high-level disinfection. Um, we've talked about this quite a bit on the, the, um, the podcast. I don't want to spend a lot of time reiterating, but I do want to reiterate the important factors here. You need to have the instructions for use, the manufacturer's instructions for every single piece of equipment, for every single instrument that you have there. You need to be able to identify who the manufacturer mm -hmm. is for each, each yeah. of those instruments. And there. just a quick point, because a lot of times you have salespeople coming in or the reps or, or people that are repairing it, they tell you, like, say, for this humidity, uh, yeah. they say, oh, this is fine at 20. You have to get that in writing. You can't just take their word for it. You know, you have to, and they probably aren't going to amend what their instructions for use are, but you can't follow something that isn't in writing. Yeah, it, actually, i give you a good example of that for a, a supply suit. There's a, a viscoelastic uh, that is stored in a refrigerator. I'm not going to mention the brand name, but it has an arrow on it that states that and it's stored in the refrigerator. It has to be stored upright. in an upright position. 
and uh, often I'll go into a center and they'll be on its side. And uh, I'll say, no, that, you know, I need to follow the manufacturer's instructions right there in the mm-hmm. box. And they'll say, oh, don't worry about it. The, manuf- the, uh, the, the rep told me that it's okay. I said, did he put it in writing? Uh, can I see that letter that yeah. says that? And, of course, there is no such thing. So, um, so every single piece of equipment, every single instrument that's used in your sterile processing, high-level disinfection, needs to have an IFU. We will be asking for it during a survey. We're going to be relying upon that information when we're, uh, you know, observing the individuals uh, working in that area, making sure that everybody follows those instructions to, for use to the T, including, you know, measuring the appropriate amount of uh, disinfectant uh, as part of that cleaning process. Mm-hmm. Um, I did want to point out, this is not something you put into policy. A policy would say that you would follow the manufacturer's instructions, mm-hmm. not what those manufacturer's instructions are. Otherwise, you're likely to have to keep revising yeah. those every time you get a new product. And I think sometimes to show what you're doing, people either, if you're talking about a soak in a in a sink, you know, you might mark the sink with how with the different levels. And also, if it's something like a dry time or a soak time, make sure there's a clock or yeah, some means of uh, that you can prove that you actually know how long something is. It's, it's so funny you should say that because I uh, I just picked up online for like $2 for timers. Mm. Uh, we use them here uh, on the podcast for mm. our conferences so that we can time. Uh, so when Lori starts to talk too long, because, of course, I never talk too long. <laughs> never. Uh, we can we have those beeps coming in. So I, I picked them up for two bucks. I mean, these things mm. are not expensive, and mm. they're very easy to buy. Put them all over the place so that you can do proper timing. Um, CLIA wave testing. I uh, mentioned that earlier, but let me just reiterate that you need to make sure – uh, so one thing to do is make sure that the manufacturer's instructions indicate that something like your blood glucose uh, is approved for use on multiple patients mm-hmm. and that it is approved for a CLIA waiver. And then, uh, of course, make sure that there's competencies performed on each of your employees and that they follow those instructions uh, make sure that, that those instructions for use are – that's one of those instructions that you can't have electronically. It's got to be really right next to whatever uh, test you're performing. And then highlight, as I mentioned, the important, the, uh, the pertinent sections there. And again, for any other wave testing that you might have, make sure that everybody has been appropriately trained. And anytime you get a new product, and that happens quite a bit mm-hmm. for things like urine pregnancy, for example, yep. you're going to have to get the new instructions for use. So. Yep, and I always make sure it's for multiple patients. So uh, just to kind of conclude, instructions for use are crucial in the healthcare setting to ensure the safe, effective, and appropriate use of medical products and equipment. They provide critical information to healthcare providers, patients, and caregivers, and help ensure compliance with the regulatory standards and quality of care. Then definitely something that your surveyors are going to be looking for. So let's take a short break, and then when we come back, we'll talk about upcoming events in the ASC industry. In this segment, we provide an update on upcoming topics for the podcast, our upcoming virtual conferences, and upcoming speaking engagements for John and his staff and other events in the ASC industry. So the Georgia Society of Ambulatory Surgery Centers and the South Carolina Ambulatory Surgery Center Association uh, are holding their semi-annual conference and trade show March 30th to 31st at the Renaissance Atlanta Waverly Hotel. And AORN's Global Surgical Conference and Expo 2023 is going to be held April 1st through the 4th at the Henry B. Gonzalez 
Convention Center in San Antonio, Texas. And the ASCA 2023 conference and expo is May 17th through the 20th, 2023 at the Kentucky International Convention Center in Louisville, Kentucky. And Sue, you just signed up 12 of our employees there, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll be speaking there, and uh, we're very excited about that. It's uh, And we'll be doing a podcast, at least one yep. podcast, probably a couple. And if you are a listener, um, we'll provide some information on how you get in touch with us during the conference or uh, send an email to info at ASC Podcast, and maybe you can be on one of those episodes. And the Arizona Ambulatory Surgery Centers Association's annual conference and exhibits is June 22nd and 23rd, 2023, at the JW Marriott Camelback Inn Resort and Spa in Scottsdale, Arizona. And the Florida Society of Ambulatory Surgical Centers annual conference and trade show is July 19th through 21st, 2023 at the Lowe's Portofino Bay Hotel Universal in Orlando. And we do want to remind everybody of our upcoming boot camps. The May Director of Nursing Boot Camp is coming up and it's advertised on our website at ASCPodcast.com. The July Administrators Boot Camp uh, is also there, and we will be uh, introducing our our brand new boot camp, which will be in August, uh, the Business Office Manager Boot Camp, and that's actually going to start August 8th. Uh, also, don't forget about all of our recorded events, uh, which are all available at ASCPodcast.com. We have our credentialing conference that was recorded in 2020, but it's still relevant, of course. We have the Fall 2022 Finance and Accounting Conference the Conditions for Coverage Conference, which is a full-day conference that goes for all the conditions for coverage. Uh, the Medical Director Conference, which is like a six-hour conference for medical directors on what their responsibilities are. And we do have on-demand versions of the Director of Nursing and Administrators Boot Camps. And again, all of those are available at ASCPodcast.com. We do want to remind everyone to become a patron member of the podcast, the Patron Member Program, which is also known as ASC Central is an exclusive membership website that provides a one-stop ASC regulatory and accreditation compliance operations and financial management resource for busy administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers. And the resources include some of our virtual conferences, links, policies and procedures, forms, drills, and, and various discounts. And uh, patron members are able to visit uh, with us on Saturday mornings. I, not always on Saturday mornings, but that's mm-hmm. our regular time at 10 o'clock Eastern Standing Time. We had a lot of people on today. We did. It was well over you know, quite a, one of our bigger sessions. And we always get a lot of advice. Sue, we, when we were getting ready for today, we weren't quite sure what we were going to talk about. So uh, somebody mentioned <laughs> uh, ideas. And said uh, instructions for you. So that's why we're talking about mm-hmm. it. Membership helps to defray the cost of producing the podcast, including our research staff, travel costs to conferences, equipment costs, and production costs. And for more information, you can visit uh, ASCPodcast.com. So thank you for tuning in to this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. We hope you found this discussion informative and engaging. And if you did, we encourage you to share it with your friends and colleagues in the ASC industry. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you never miss one of our episodes. We like to give a special shout out to our amazing team who make this podcast possible. Our sound editor, Susan Cronkite, our executive producer, I guess that would be me, John Gailey, and our dedicated research team of Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Galleritis, Amy Durbano, Lori Rodericks, Kathy Foti, Donna Macchio, Ann Geyer, and Diana Powell. We couldn't do it without them. Our music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah, and the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast platforms. We look forward to bringing you more exciting discussions and insights in the future episodes. Thanks so much for listening. 
This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, Trivalence, and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Surgical Information Systems provides cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable insights. Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies is the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute, legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you are interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.